Good morning. Good morning. Good to see you all. You too. I can tell you right now, I told the band, I told Dennis, told our sound folks, camera stuff, camera folks, I am so stirred up this morning. The Father has something to say to us this morning. Zephaniah chapter 3. If you would turn your Bible, Zephaniah chapter 3. So this is an obscure book that most of us don't look at. So go to the New Testament and then back up four books. That's Zephaniah. So just a little helpful tip for you that are not using digital. Uh, Zephaniah chapter 3. The message this morning is joy. Zephaniah 3, 14 to 20. The big idea of the Advent series that we've been walking through, the big idea is this. The Old Testament prophets teach us how to wait well for the coming king as we come to the end of a difficult and divisive 2020. And we've been walking through, here's our Advent series, we've been walking through, a couple weeks ago we looked at hope, November 29th. Last week we looked at peace, December 6th. Today we're looking at joy, And then Dennis is going to close us out looking at love next week. And joy is an interesting uh, concept, isn't it? Joy. Especially as we look at the life that we're living in 2020, many people are not experiencing joy. Isn't that right? Some of you right now, as you sit here, are not experiencing joy. And the truth of the matter is, there is great sorrow in this world. There's great sadness and sorrow. But we are called to be people of joy. So this message is asking the question, how exactly does that work? And how do we avoid being Pollyanna in our approach towards joy? sticking our head in the sand, pretending like nothing is happening, and just trying to muster up joy. So the big idea of the message this morning is our joy is rooted in the power, presence, and joy of God for us in Emmanuel, God with us. Our joy, your joy, is rooted in the power, presence, and joy of God for us in Emmanuel, which means God with us us. And that's what Zephaniah 3, 14 to 20 tells us. So the aim for the message is this. We're going to have three questions that we're going to go after. First question is, what is the context of this passage? And then what is the command? What are we commanded to do in this passage? And the second question, why should we do this, generally speaking? Verses 15 to 17. And third question, why should we do this specifically? So we're going to go from the general to the specific or the corporate to the personal. And finally, we're going to look at some summary truths and do some application. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to go after the text. Father, I thank you. Thank you for your nature. Thank you for the way that you are with us. I thank you that you are unchanging, you are immovable. And 
And you are a faithful anchor to our soul. So Abba, your kids come to you this morning to hear you speak. I ask that you would speak to us. And Jesus, we honor you. You are God with us. So we honor you here in this place. We say there is no other name that we adore like yours. And Holy Spirit, you are the Spirit of the Father and the Son sent to give us understanding of the word. So Holy Spirit, be our teacher this morning. You are welcome here in this place. And awaken joy in us this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Let's go after this. First question, what is the context and command? And that should be verse 14, not verse 1. So that's, that's my bad. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 14. The prophet writes this. He says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Now, this is interesting, isn't it? <laughs> if you know the book of Zephaniah, and you look back, Zephaniah is three chapters long. The first chapter and in fact, the entire book is about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is this coming judgment where God is going to make things right. And it is a fearful, awful thing, this day of the Lord. You understand what I'm saying? And Zephaniah is talking about this day of the Lord. And in chapter 1, he's expressing judgment against Judah, his own people. There's a lot of woe in the book of Zephaniah. <laughs> There's judgment on Judah in chapter 1. In chapter 2, there's judgment on the nations and specifically the enemies of Judah. Chapter 3, he discusses the future of Jerusalem and these nations. And then in verse 14, the prophet fast forwards to the end and says, this is coming, so you should rejoice in it. And it's really interesting. There's all this judgment and woe and day of the Lord but then there's this discussion of joy. Four imperative commands uh, in the Hebrew text, and I've bolded them and italicized them so you can see the imperative commands. Sorry, previous one, Isabel. Uh, the first command is one more. Okay, the first command is sing aloud. Sing aloud. O daughter of Zion, which means to sing with your voice. That's an obvious, makes sense. But it's an imperative command for the people of God to sing. The second command is to shout, which means have a sudden loud cry. And it has the, the feeling of a battle cry victory. Did, did anybody watch college football yesterday? You notice, of course, there's not people in the stands, right? But have you ever been at a sporting event right at the very end and the team that wins, what happens to the crowd? There is an eruption of joy. We did it! This is awesome! There's a loud, sudden shout. That's the second imperative, to shout. The third imperative is to rejoice, which means to have great joy, to express joy. The fourth imperative, he says, exult with all your heart, which means to express exceeding joy. 
Now, why am I taking all the time to do this? Why, why, am, I, why am I stressing and pressing on these imperatives? Because there's a, there's a disconnect, I think, sometimes, especially when we look at a text like Zephaniah. For instance, just flip over to chapter 1. Look what Zephaniah says. This is verse 2. And, and, and just read in the context. Are we, is this a joyful thing that we're hearing? This is verse 2. I will, this is God speaking, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. <laughs> Does that sound like something joyful? No, it sounds like judgment. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. And I could just keep going. What is God saying? I'm going to wipe everything away. And then Zephaniah turns and says, rejoice and sing. I was reading in the commentary called the New International Commentary, and there's a theologian named Palmer Robertson, and he wrote this. One of the most awesome descriptions of the wrath of God in judgment found anywhere in Scripture appears in the opening verses of Zephaniah. The totality of the cosmos will be consumed in his burning anger. The very order of creation shall be overturned. And one of the most moving descriptions of the love of God for his people found anywhere in Scripture appears in the closing verses of Zephaniah. God and his people attain heights in the ecstasy of love that are hard to comprehend. And then he says this, sadness and depression would seem to be the order of the day. Unrelieved lamentation would be expected, but the prophet can look beyond these tragedies. He calls for an unrestrained celebration of joy. I want to let us sit in this pressure. I mean, do y'all feel that? Do y'all feel the tension of judgment and joy? And the prophet is calling for an unrestrained celebration of joy. So I'm going to let us sit in this tension because we're going to get to the why in the next question, but I want us to sit in it. So here's the discussion question. What does an unrestrained celebration of joy look like in your life? And how would you obey this command from Zephaniah 3, 14 to 20? So we're going to take two minutes, and those, that's the question I want you to ask the, your neighbor. Talk through them, and if you're online, talk to your neighbor and then put answers in the chat as you do that. What does an unrestrained celebration of joy look like in your life? And the answer may be, it doesn't, right? <laughs> So this is the time for us to discuss and just have some real honest discussion. Two minutes, and then we'll come back for some discussion. Two minutes. That's two minutes. Uh, Dennis has got a microphone, and he's also um, kind of monitoring the chat that's coming in. So go ahead and put those answers in the chat if you're online right now. Um, anybody want to respond to this question? What does an unrestrained celebration of joy, which is what is commanded of us in Ze Zephaniah 3? Mimi. Unrestrained joy for our family would be sitting around the dinner table, enjoying it, and ending it with brownies and ice cream. 
Ooh. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> I like it. Who else? Sometimes I just get really weird. It doesn't matter where I am. I've been known to do it at work. or And I'll just feel something that I'm excited about. And I might dance or shout hallelujah out loud and freak people out. But I, I can't control it. It just, that's what my unrestrained celebration of the joy that rises within looks like. Yep. That's good, Naj. Right. That's good. Excellent. Anybody else? A dance party in the basement with my dad slamming me on the beanbags. A dance party in the basement with my dad slamming me on the beanbag chairs. Yes. Yes. Scott Hobart says, among many things we can do, I think we can stay practical. We can continue to gather with believers. We can continue to serve God. We can continue to give and pray for others. It's good. It's good. Anybody else? So I'll be honest, like personally, we got one more. Sometimes I like to make up a song about Jesus or just sing. Make up a song about Jesus or sing. I love it. So for me, um, the modifying word unrestrained actually makes me uncomfortable, <laughs> right? Uh, and I realize that's not true of everyone, but in, in my growing up in the church, serious Christians were restrained, not unrestrained. Are you all hearing me? Uh, in, in my experience of Christianity, the, the better of a Christian you were in church, the more still you were, uh, the more restrained you were. But these imperative commands act, actually have a very emotional, physical response to them. Unrestrained celebration of joy. Let's look at the second question, because this is what's, this is what's begging it. Yeah, D. I got, I got one more here from uh, Dennis Spurgeon. Yep. When we bring our sin into the open, we find we are still loved in spite of the sin, mm-hmm. which brings us joy. Mm-hmm. And Michael Blanger says, because of the pandemic, I have more joy because I spend more time with the Lord and dwelling in his love. Yeah. That's true joy. That's good. Those, both those guys are foreshadowing the next two questions. The second question, why should we do this, generally speaking? So thinking corporately here, very generally, why do this? Why have unrestrained joy? Why have this kind of celebration? Why have this kind of emotional, physical response? The prophet tells us, verses 15 to 17a, so the first half of verse 17. He says this, this is why, verse 15, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you, He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hearts, your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. So the prophet gives three reasons, and you can see them in the text right here. I've given these three reasons. Number one, The reason to have this physical, emotional, unrestrained joy, the first is because the Lord has taken away 
the judgments against you. So the first chapter is all about God's judgment against his own people. And then he says here, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has removed the guilt of his people. He's taken guilty people who deserve judgment, and he has taken away that guilt. Do you see it? That's number one reason. He's taken away judgment from his people. Second, he has cleared away your enemies, he says. He has triumphed over. He has turned away. He has rejected those who are seeking to destroy you. That's the second one. Third, not only has he taken away judgment, not only has he cleared away the enemies, he is with you. He is in your midst. God himself is with you. He has not abandoned you, but he is with you. And that word mighty is the Hebrew word gabor, which instantly brings images of the mighty men, David and his gabor, his giborim, the mighty men. So God is saying, I am a kind of divine warrior king who is here to be with you. These are the reasons, generally speaking, the prophet says you are to be joyful. And at Christmas time, you know, we're in Advent. The joy of Christmas is that the one who has done these things came as a little baby. He came as a little baby to take away our sin and to clear out our enemies and to be God with us, to be in our midst. Here's just a couple of verses. Luke 2, we looked at this last week, but I, I, I have to read it again. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people for unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior who is Christ the Lord and this will be a sign to you you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in the manger and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts they were praising God and singing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased let me just say something the angels understand exactly the importance of Jesus coming So much so that when they show up, they say, I have good news for you. God is coming. You know, sometimes we're so blinded. We're like shepherds in a field with stinky sheep. We may be the stinky sheep, right? And we're sitting there and we are blinded to the glorious reality that we are not stuck in our sin, but God has come to rescue us. Christmas is in fact that God is on a rescue mission to cleanse us of all sin to forgive us. So much so that every heavenly being, when they see Jesus coming as a baby, they go, "Uh uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. Joy! I mean, a heavenly host. This is a giant army, swords in hand, singing, glory to God, he is here. So that when Jesus, as a man, rides on a donkey into Jerusalem, everyone is hearing Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
Why do you think they had palm branches? He's here. This is going to be awesome. And then there's the spiritual reality. Paul puts it this way in Colossians 2, 13 to 15. He says, you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside nailing it to the cross he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him listen at the fall Adam and Eve gave up (laughs) their rights as in relationship with God they gave that up to the enemy and the, the new Adam comes, Jesus comes as a baby, grows into a man, and he is nailed to the cross for the sin of the world. Your sin and my sin. And Paul says that when they nailed him to the cross, it disarmed the enemy. It cleared away the enemies from Ze- Zephaniah. Y'all hear me? He disarmed the enemies. What does it mean to disarm Satan and the enemies? It means this. The enemies hold over any of us is only attached to the ability to accuse us of sin. But when Jesus dies on the cross in my place, the enemy cannot accuse me of sin because it has been dealt with in Jesus. You see, Jesus nailed to the cross became my sin. Jesus dying on the cross became your sin. He disarmed the power of the enemy because at that point, when Jesus is buried and is resurrected, victorious over sin and death, there is no more power of the enemy over me when I am in Christ. Are y'all hearing me this morning? That's good. That's good. Yeah. He disarmed the enemy. He cleared away the enemies. And he looks at Jamie in Christ and says, I have forgotten your sin and your judgment has been taken away, Jamie, because of good news. And oh, by the way, I'm taking my spirit and I'm putting it in your midst right in here. Part of the reason we're not joyful people is because we have forgotten the good news of the gospel. In fact, when I am the most in a funk, y'all know what I'm talking about? Not me, y'all, right? No, it's me too. When I'm most in a funk, it's because I'm not remembering the good news of the gospel. When I'm the most in a funk, it's because I think I'm the savior in that moment. It reminds me of, of the Pharisee who's standing there praying to God and there's another man beating his chest. And the man, this Pharisee is like, God, thank you so much. I'm not like this sucker. And the guy's beating his breast. Have mercy on me. You see, joy comes from realizing how great a sin you've been forgiven of. This eruption of joy and worship is directly tied to my understanding in my mind and heart of the goodness of God in the gospel. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And God dwells within us. We're in his presence. There is fullness of joy, the Bible says. 
then Jesus says, John 15, 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Last week we looked at Jesus gives us his peace, right? This week he says, I'm going to give you my joy and it will be full. It will not be lacking. Jesus is either telling the truth or he's not, right? And Jesus said, I'm going to give you my joy and it will be full. That tells me my understanding of that full joy, there's some sort of disconnect. And the argument I'm making is the disconnect is when we don't understand the gospel good news. So let's look at some discussion. If Psalm 1611 is true in your presence is fullness of joy, then why are so many Christians unhappy? Two minutes in joy. Two minutes. Okay. That's a good question, even if I wrote it myself. If Psalm 1611 is true, then why are so many Christians unhappy? Dee's got a couple of folks, but then I want to share in the room as well. So, yeah, so we've got Mark Abney saying, uh, the joy for me is having God in my heart. Uh, John Terry Kofsky says, it can look like our excitement and celebration as we watch an LSU football game. And then we've got, we've heard here from Roger King from Owasso, Oklahoma, who I, I hear is a friend of Jamie. He says, I miss getting to see Jamie get fired up. Very good. <laughs> Anybody else? <laughs> this brought a hymn to mind, Fix Your Eyes on Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We take our eyes off Jesus, and we put our eyes on ourself, or whatever. Very good. All right. Got one over here. One thing I'll offer up is sometimes we uh, have a person who knows about Jesus, but heard about the Father, hasn't been adopted, hasn't heard about the Holy Spirit, just hasn't understood the whole story. Right. Um, I know me personally is when I'm not consistently in my word and consistently praying, I do get down with everything that's going on in this world and in my family. But because I've been taught as a young man from my dad, you always pray. You always read your word. That's where you get your joy and your peace. So that's what keeps me going when people are like, why are you so happy if you only knew who I knew? <laughs> Amen. Anybody else we got here? Dennis Spurgeon says, when we compare ourselves to others, we cannot see how wrong our own sin actually is. We have to compare ourselves to perfection. And Jess Moore says, because we don't connect with his presence to experience that joy, mm. we are distracted by all the thoughts, feelings, people, things, we let take precedent over being in his presence. Yep. Roger King says, we believe the accuser when he accuses us and we forget the grace God has given us. Mm. And David McMillan says, too many Christians are trying to define themselves rather than rejoicing in God's definition of them. Come on, Dave. Okay. That's a good one. That's good. Oh, yeah, we got one over here. Uh, yeah, real quick, uh, I, I just wanted to jump on what Eddie said there, is it says, in your presence. That's huge. Yeah. <laughs> Not outside of the presence, in your yeah. presence. 
And then secondly, I think what Dave was hitting on too, is it really is our identity. We're trying to find joy in everything else like the world, whether our football team or our, whatever it is that we think we find joy in. If our identity is not in the Father and knowing who we are in Him, then, yeah, that just doesn't work. And Sam, doesn't work for me if I'm thinking that way. That's good. Got one more over here. Mary Ellen Hobaugh says, it could be that many of us are white-knuckling through our day rather than trusting in God's love for us. I would say, too, that when there is unconfessed or unrepentant sin in my life, that is when I'm missing out on joy as well, you know. Yeah, David say when I David said in the Psalms, like when I don't confess my sin, my bones are wasting away within me. He's describing that feeling of when I'm trying to hide and pretend like I didn't just sin against the Lord, it's actually eroding. There's spiritual atrophy and erosion in my heart. Yeah, that's good. Okay. This is a big question, friends. This is the question, this is the kind of question that I ask in the moment. You ever have those moments where, well, I'll just confess this. There are times where I will speak so unlovingly to Jess and my kids. Right? And I stop and I go, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't don't say it out loud. (laughs) In my heart, I go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why am I talking like that to my wife and my children? And 99.9% of the time is because for some reason I have put my joy in something else other than the Father. It might have been in my wife's opinion of me. And so when she says something that hurts my feelings, my joy quotient just plummets. Anybody else understand what I'm saying right now? Because when my joy is set in her opinion of me, and then she says something critical, what happens to my joy? My joy goes, boop! And then what do I do? I don't like that my joy is gone. Raw! Or or my capacity to be a great dad, and then my kids disobey or push back against me or do something wrong. If my joy is in their behavior, my joy drops, I will explode on them. In those moments, I ask the question, I'm like, Holy Spirit, what is happening? And 99.9% of the time, he says, because your joy is being found in something else other than my love for you. That's a big question. When you're unhappy, start to ask, where have I been putting my joy? What is it that I've been putting full joy on that I've just lost. Maybe it's finances. Maybe it's health. Whatever it is. We better move on before we don't finish question three. Question three. Why should we do this specifically? You see, as I was reading this text... And this is why I'm so stirred up is what we're about to talk about. (laughs) You thought I got riled up on the first two. Generally speaking, we see these huge themes. God's power, right? That he's come and destroyed sin and destroyed the enemy. And he's dwelling within us. Generally, this is all true. And it is good gospel-motivated joy. 
But the prophet goes, like those infomercials, but wait, there's more, right? There's more. <laughs> and, then he's, and then he says this, which I will just say right now, this may be, these, these three verses may be some of the most stunning verses I have ever read in my life. Because now gospel motivation goes right into your heart. This mighty one, this savior, this divine warrior, he comes and does some things over us. Let's read the text, verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. He will rejoice over you. God delights. That's what that word rejoice means. He delights over you. He quiets you. And it's interesting. Hebrew scholars say that actually it's not that he's quieting us. Look at verse 17. It's not that he will quiet us by his love. It's that he is quiet over us in his love. It is picturing a father looking at his child and silenced in joy. And in his mind going, that's my boy. That's my girl. And I'm speechless. And then he says, he will exult. He will rejoice over you with singing. And here is the thing I want you to see. Do you see the verb rejoice over you and exult over you? You see those? Same concept as verse 14 where we're commanded to rejoice and exult. Listen, listen. We are commanded to do something the Father is doing over us in Christ. Are y'all hearing me? We are commanded to rejoice in him. Why? Because he has rejoiced over us and it's undeserved. I don't deserve his joy over me because of the sin in my life. Yet in Christ, he looks at me and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased because he has put his faith in my son Christ. We are commanded to rejoice and to exult this unrestrained celebration of joy because the father is unrestrained in his celebration of joy over us in Christ. It is mind-boggling. You and I don't deserve this love. We don't deserve this relationship. We don't deserve this joy. But God has chosen to delight in us in Christ. <laughs> it reminded me of when he was talking to the people of Israel after they left Egypt. <laughs> this is Deuteronomy 7. Verse 7, he says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. <laughs> but it is because the Lord loves you. 
and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. You know, when the prodigal son has his face in a pig trough, Jesus tells that story. He says that he comes to his senses. The prodigal son comes to his senses and says, you know what? I'm going to go back. Maybe my dad will take me in as a, as a household servant. There's no way I'm going to be his son again. There's no way. What I've done, there's no way I'm going to be his son again. Maybe he'll take me as a servant. So he's rehearsing this confession. And Jesus says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said, shh, 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 shh stop talking. That's, that's extra. The father said to, his, said to him, actually said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. And you can just picture it at that meal time, right? And this son is eating because he's starving, right? And he looks up and he sees his father who's just quiet, just smiling and beaming because my boy's back. Can you see it? That is the father's love for you in Jesus. This is what Advent and Christmas is about. The father's love poured out for the world to come in human flesh to die on a cross for your sin and my sin. To take on sin and disarm the enemy and say, come home. And while you're sleeping at night, if you are in Christ, the father sings. The Father delights in you because you are in Christ. And Dennis is right on this. We hear the gospel turn and be saved by Jesus who died for your sins and was resurrected on the third day. We hear the gospel good news. We come into faith in Christ. But sometimes we didn't hear the fact that he delights in us now. That our identity is loved sons and daughters of the king. So I just want to ask you, have you experienced this kind of love? And even if you have, sometimes we forget, right? <laughs> I do. And that's why Paul says that he's praying for the, people, the church in Ephesus. He goes, I bow before the Father that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Listen, as believers, we need to pray for each other, just like Paul did. I'm going to be praying that Josh 
Harney experiences more and more and comprehends deeper and deeper the love of the Father over his life. And I need to look at my small group and say, and pray daily for my small group. I'm praying that they will comprehend deeper and deeper the love of Christ. This is what Paul did for the Ephesians church. Listen, there's, there's no guilt here like, well, I've never experienced that love. That's okay. You need a pole in your life that will pray that you will comprehend by the Spirit the height and breadth and depth and length of the love of the Father for you. And then, for good measure, pray it over yourself. I do that. My Holy Spirit, you're the love of the Father poured into my heart. I want to experience this love. So discussion. What is the Father saying to me, and what am I going to do about it? (laughs) So based off all that we've said, I'm going to just take two minutes here. What is the Father saying to you right now? And what are you practically going to put into place this week to walk in joy? A couple minutes. Let's discuss. Um, a couple of folks to share, and then we're going to finish in worship, singing to this great God. I see Mark over here. A couple of folks to share. Uh, what's the Father saying to you? What are you going to do about it? A couple of years ago, uh, Holly and I got to go to Israel with some people in this church, and we went to the Jordan River. We saw a place where John the Baptist might have lifted Jesus out of the rushing water. And uh, I know from Scripture that God said, that's my son in him. I am well pleased. Listen to him. And the thought that this shouldn't be, but it's the same with me. And that's just totally crazy. (laughs) It'll almost create unrestrained joy. That's good. Uh, John and Terry Kofsky, uh, Terry says joy comes from a place of trust and rest, um, which is difficult when we are concentrating on our circumstances. John Kofsky says, for me, moving out of the presence of the Lord is so easy and it's so hard to return um, and it, it should not be that way because of what he's done. Sherry Collins says, Zephaniah 3.17 is radical. The God of all that is rejoices over us. Yeah. That's cause for joy. Um, and because he rejoices over us, we can rejoice over him. Yes. Jess Moore says, I don't often think about God rejoicing over me. That's so good and undeserved. Aaron Page says, the command to have joy is based on God giving us a reason for joy. Yep. He yep. always takes the initiative. Yep. And David McMillan says, I feel like the quiet love is the love that is unquestioned. The love that you know without a doubt. And that seems strange to even think about because it's such a constant force in my life. Mm. And Aaron Page says, I'm going to reflect on his goodness to me in the past and to better realize that the joy that he wants me to have is unrelated to my yeah. circumstances. Yep. There's a reality, of course, that we are not always experiencing the joy of the Lord because we have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death to one degree or another. But I think what's been helpful here is to remember that the Lord is on the other side of that valley. He's waiting for us to walk through it. He's walking through it with us, and he's waiting for us at the same time to return. That's good, Bert. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
Amen. Okay, um, I put some summary truths, uh, and I'm going to invite the band to come on up because we're. <clears throat> I'm just going to go through these summary truths fairly quickly. Number one, lasting joy can only be found in an eternally satisfying object, which is what I was discussing about if my joy is in someone's approval of me, um, (laughs) someone's going to be disappointed in me and then my joy will be gone. (laughs) But if my joy is in an eternally satisfying object, namely the Father, then I have lasting joy. Number two, joy is a natural response to the saving work of God on our behalf. It is a natural response that God has done this for us. It's a battle cry of victory. Third, gospel-motivated joy is commanded of us. It is not a suggestion. These are commands in Scripture, so it's interesting. It's not if you get around to it, be joyful. (laughs) It's rejoice. And this is rightfully so. Fourth, joy is emotional And grounded in the joy of the Father for us in Christ. It's his joy over us in Christ that is the basis of our joy. And finally, you must fight for joy. And I heard the Father say this clearly to us, MCC. And if you're watching online, I want you to hear this right now. The Father says you're going to have to fight for this joy in this season. You have to fight. What do I mean by that? It means when something disappointing and stressful comes that you say, no, I'm going to be gospel motivated in this moment. It may be your mind, it may be your family, it may be your work, it may be 2021. But we need to be the kind of people that say, I'm not putting up with the enemy whispering in my ear. I'm going to fight for joy. And if it means writing down gospel verses, putting them on a card and just reading them, over and over all day, then I'm going to do that. So I heard the Father say this clearly. I'm telling you right now, if you don't fight for joy, sorrow will consume you this season. I'm not speaking ill. I'm just saying, fight for joy. Be aggressive going for joy this Christmas season. Not candy cane joy, not gingerbread joy. Cross and resurrection joy. And fight for it. We're going to sing two songs. And I just encourage you to heed the prophet's command to rejoice with loud singing, to exult in this victory, to delight yourself in the good news. Let's stand. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing. Father, we thank you. We thank you that we can be people of joy because you have come and, res- you have come and rescued us. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would ignite joy within us and that you would give us strategy to fight for joy the rest of 2020 and into 2021. Holy Spirit, would you give us strategy and understanding? And I bless MCC that you would comprehend the height and the depth and the length and the breadth of the love of God in Christ. Let's worship him in Jesus' name. Amen.